The House and Senate are still both in recess and still will not return until the middle of November. On the COVID front, despite the fact that President Biden said three weeks ago during his interview with 60 Minutes that the pandemic is over, last Thursday, the Biden administration extended for another 90 days the COVID public health emergency. That declaration keeps in place high payments to hospitals and expanded Medicaid and, of course, is the underpinning for a host of emergency measures, including the Biden student loan payoff scam. The Biden administration has asked Congress for another $24 billion in funding for COVID-related spending. Now let's talk more about that student loan payoff scam. On Monday of last week, the Job Creators Network added its muscle to those who filed suit against the Biden administration over its plan to assume the debt payments of some student loan debt borrowers. Filing in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas against the Department of Education and its secretary, Miguel Cardona, the suit specifically cites the plan's development as a violation of the Administrative Procedures Act and its notice and comment procedures. The lawsuit also challenges the administration's legal justification for the entire scheme. The job creator's lawsuit includes two plaintiffs. The first is one who does not qualify for the program because the plan excludes commercially held loans that are not in default. And let's stop for just a moment and consider that. This plan was so poorly created that it excludes private loans where the debtor was making payments regularly and on time. What kind of moral hazard does that create? The second is a debtor who did not receive a Pell Grant and consequently is entitled to less debt forgiveness. The case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Reed O'Connor. If his name sounds familiar, that's because he's an appointee of President George W. Bush, who ruled in 2018 that Obamacare is unconstitutional. The Supreme Court overruled that decision last year. Now let's talk about immigration. On Wednesday, October 5, a three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that President Obama's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, otherwise known as DACA, violates U.S. immigration law. The panel concluded that the Obama administration did not have the legal authority to create the program in 2012. In doing so, the appeals court affirmed a July 2021 ruling from District Judge Andrew Hannon that barred the Biden administration from adding new immigrants to the program, but left it intact for the 594,120 people who are currently enrolled in it. The Department of Justice, which had sought to defend the DACA program, said it disagreed with the ruling and promised to, quote, vigorously defend the lawfulness of DACA as this case proceeds, unquote, indicating that the DOJ will likely appeal the ruling to the Supreme Court. That same Monday, House Judiciary Committee ranking member Jim Jordan of Ohio, who's in line to become the chairman of the Judiciary Committee if Republicans recapture the House in the November elections, told the Washington Times that he believes DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, quote, deserves to be impeached after overseeing an unprecedented surge of illegal activity at our southern border. Quote, Mayorkas deserves it, Jordan told the Times. He's told us how many times the border is secure, and you almost want to say, like, what are you talking about? There's not a rational person with an ounce of common sense who thinks the border is secure. 
We don't really have a border anymore. And we've had a record number of millions of illegal immigrants coming across. So he certainly deserves it. But that'll be a decision we make as a committee and one that we make as a conference, end quote. Those who'd like to see Mayorkas impeached got more evidence last week when news reports indicated that prior to his participation in a press conference in September 2021, where he criticized Border Patrol agents in Del Rio, Texas, for their alleged whipping of Haitian migrants, he received an email from his chief spokesperson, Maria Espinosa, I'm sorry, Marcia Espinosa, with a highlighted article in which the photographer who snapped the photos of the agents on horseback said that despite what people thought they saw, none of the agents whipped migrants. The highlighted portion of the article quoted the photographer explaining that the photos were misconstrued. Yet Mayorkas, after being briefed by his own spokesperson, nevertheless spoke at a White House press briefing just hours later and said the images, quote, painfully conjured up the worst elements of our nation's ongoing battle against systemic racism, end quote. Now to the January 6th committee. On Thursday of last week, the January 6th committee held what will likely be its last public hearing, except it wasn't actually a hearing. As Chairman Benny Thompson noted in his opening statement, the committee was convening as a formal committee business meeting rather than a hearing, which meant that in addition to presenting evidence, the panel could also hold a committee vote on further investigative actions without having to adjourn and then reconvene. That's how the committee was able to make news Thursday when it voted to subpoena former President Trump. Anticipating your questions, yes, a committee of the Congress has the legal authority to subpoena Trump. As to whether or not he will comply with that subpoena, that's a different question, as is the question of whether or not a former president can be compelled to testify before a committee of the Congress. There is precedent. A committee of the Congress has subpoenaed a former president. In 1953, former President Harry S. Truman was subpoenaed by the House Committee on Un-American Activities which had accused Truman of knowingly appointing a Soviet spy to a government position while Truman was president. Truman refused to comply with the subpoena. Instead, he gave a national address denying the committee's accusation, and the House dropped the matter. Two decades later, under pressure from the House, President Nixon cited the Truman example when he refused to comply with a subpoena for his Oval Office tapes from the Office of the Special Counsel. Of course, that was a different situation, constitutionally speaking. The Congress is a creature of Article I of the Constitution and is a co-equal branch with a special counsel, which was appointed by the Attorney General, which, of course, is a creature of Article II of the Constitution. And technically speaking, a special counsel derives its power and authority from the president himself. So in the Nixon case, you had the constitutionally odd phenomenon of a subordinate of the president in the executive branch subpoenaing the president himself. In the event, Nixon gave the special counsel only some of the tapes that had been requested and only in edited form. The special counsel took him to court and the Supreme Court ruled unanimously against Nixon, ordering him to turn over all the requested materials. Nixon resigned before handing over all the tapes, and he was pardoned a month later by his successor, Gerald Ford. That mooted the subpoena issue, so it's still an outstanding legal issue. There is no Supreme Court ruling 
that settles the question of whether or not a former president can be compelled to testify before a congressional committee. But here's the thing. It's now the middle of October. Given Trump's response, a 14-page letter that repeated his claims that the 2020 election was stolen, but sidestepped whether or not he would comply with a subpoena that at the time of its writing had yet to be issued, is it's not at all a sure thing that he will ever testify before that committee. He could choose to fight the subpoena in the courts. There's no certainty the courts would even be able to come to a final decision on such a weighty matter before January 3rd, when this Congress fades into memory and the next Congress is inaugurated. And with the Republicans likely to be in the majority in the House in the next Congress, this committee and its subpoena would presumably fade into memory with it. Now let's do a campaign update. We've talked about the Senate and we've talked about the House, and today we'll talk about the governor's races. There are 36 governor seats up this cycle. Democrats hold 16, Republicans hold 20. Of the 16 seats currently held by the Democrats, the Cook Political Report rates six as solid Democrat, four as likely Democrat, two as lean Democrat, and four as toss-ups. Of the 20 seats currently held by the Republicans, Cook rates two seats as solid Democrat, one as a toss-up, one as lean Republican, four as likely Republican, and 12 as solid Republican. First, the two Republican-held seats that are deemed solid Democrat. That's Massachusetts and Maryland, two fundamentally Democrat states where moderate Republican governors Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan are vacating the governor's mansions after two terms in office. And the states are expected to revert to their traditional political leanings. The one Republican-held seat that's listed as a toss-up, that's Arizona. It's an open seat where Republican nominee Carrie Lake is, presu- is proving herself to be the star of this year's Republican re- recruiting class. She's a former TV anchor in Phoenix, which just happens to be the 11th largest media market in the country. She spent 22 years on television, so she's comfortable in front of the camera. Former President Trump endorsed her, and so has Tea Party Patriots Citizens Fund. She's made election integrity a centerpiece of her campaign. The Democrats have nominated the incumbent Secretary of State, Katie Hobbs. That race has been a dead heat for months now. It could go either way. The one Republican-held seat that's listed as lean Republican is Georgia, where incumbent Republican Governor Brian Kemp is in a rematch with the Democrat he defeated in 2018, Stacey Abrams. This one was supposed to be a toss-up from the start, but to be honest, the polls have shown Kemp with a solid lead over Abrams for months now. This one looks more like it's likely Republican. On the other side, there are four Democrat-held seats that are listed as toss-ups. Those are Kansas, Nevada, Oregon, and and Wisconsin. Oregon is an odd duck. It's an open seat. We all know Oregon is a blue state. It has not elected a Republican governor since 1982. But there are two liberal Democrats running for governor in the general election, one as the nominee of the Democrat Party and one as an independent. And the independent has actually raised more money than either of the two major party nominees. The two major party nominees are polling in the low 30s on the ballot test, while the independent candidate is polling in the low 20s. Normally, as we get closer to Election Day, support for independent candidates dries up as their supporters come to the conclusion that the independents are not going to win and therefore a vote for the independent candidate is a wasted vote. 
We have not seen that phenomenon occur yet in Oregon. So all the handicappers are keeping this race in the toss-up column. Kansas is, we all believed for a very long time, a solid red state. Many think it still is, despite the fact that it elected a Democrat to the governor's mansion in 2018. They think that the 2018 GOP nominee, Chris Kobach, was too extreme and ran a bad campaign in a strong Democrat year. Consequently, they think that this year, when Democrat Governor Laura Kelly is running for re-election and faces someone other than Kobach on the ballot, she'll lose. There's been only one poll in the general election, and it shows Kelly leading the Republican nominee, the state's current attorney general, Derek Schmidt, by the slim margin of 45 to 43%. That's actually inside the margin of error, which means that's a dead heat, and that's not a good place to be if you're an incumbent. Nevada has been a blue state for a long time, but it's also got one of the highest inflation rates in the country, and COVID hit its hospitality industry-based economy particularly hard. As a consequence, the Democrats who run the state are running scared this cycle. The state's U.S. Senator in cycle, Catherine Cortez Masto, is in deep trouble, and three of the four Democrat House members are in difficult races. So is the Democrat Governor, Steve Sisolak. In a rare confluence, the Republican establishment and former President Trump endorsed the same candidate, Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo. Clark County is home to Las Vegas and about three quarters of the state's voters. The Democrat governor hasn't been over 46 in a ballot test on a poll since January, and the Republican nominee, Sheriff Lombardo, has led in four of the last five polls. In Wisconsin, very liberal Democrat Tony Evers is running for re-election against Republican nominee businessman Tim Michaels. Michaels defeated Republican Rebecca Cleefish in the Republican primary. This race is rated a toss-up for a reason. It's a dead heat in every single poll for the last month, and there's been a lot of polling going on. This one will go right down to the wire. In other races, I expect Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are going to win re-election rather easily. One of the stories that's been generally unremarked upon in this election cycle is the Democrat grassroots willingness to throw away so much money on so many candidates with no chance of winning. Texas and Florida and their gubernatorial contests are cases in point. As of August 3rd, Florida Democrat Val Demings had raised $47 million. That's as of two months ago. I haven't seen the most recent fundraising report because it hasn't been filed yet. As of last week, Texas Democrat Beto O'Rourke had raised $66 million. And I guarantee Democrat consultants are going to wish they'd had some of that money to go to other races where it might have actually made a difference. I also expect Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer to win re-election, and I expect the Democrat nominee for governor in the open seat in Pennsylvania, the current state attorney general, Josh Shapiro, to win. That's our Washington report and our campaign update for this week.